This episode of the Nature Photographer podcast was recorded in late October prior to the finalization of the alignment between ASMP and NAMPA. More information about this new combined organization will be included in upcoming episodes. Please enjoy this episode of the Nature Photographer podcast with NAMPA President Beth Hunting. Welcome to the Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by Wild and Exposed. Tonight we have um, my counterpart, the current NAMPA president, Beth Hunting, joined by Jason Loftus and Ron Hayes from Wild and Exposed. So welcome, Beth. This should be fun. I'm looking forward to chatting with you to see what I, I know what you're you're working on and what we've transitioned from what I was doing to what you're doing and what goals you have. But I think our viewers or listeners might be interested in hearing what what you have coming up for the for the next year within Nampa. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly a year is going to fly by. Yeah, it's already what two months, three months into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Beth, how long have you been with Nampa? I have been with Nampa since I think year two or three from when it was first founded. So I've been with Nampa a long, long time. I was originally the membership chair not long after Nampa started. That's when we had a membership chair. And then I was on the Environment Committee, which is now the Conservation Committee, and was the 2011 recipient of the Philip Hyde Grant, which is a conservation grant that's given to a NAMPA member that's working on an existing NAMPA project um, to further conservation. And so um, my project was called Turning the Tide, Protecting and Restoring the Wetlands of San Francisco Bay and the California Coast. And I was coordinating a partnership where we laid out the biological goals, did restoration design, and were protecting and restoring. Um, We'd identified about 300,000 acres that we wanted to protect and restore. And so um, it took a lot of coordination to get everybody on the same page so they weren't competing with each other and to get projects tied together. But in order to get the funding to do large-scale restoration, We needed a lot of public support, and we also needed to be able to have political support because large-scale restoration involves a lot of money, and there are federal and state programs out there that can fund these, but we needed to build the support. So that's primarily what my project did was work on publications, audio tours, um, leading decision-making tours in the field, and then also... um, using that to leverage other money from places like our utility PG&E and other funders that could help advance the mission and the cause so that we could garner the support that we needed. And by the time I decided to move back to being a more full-time photographer and not be coordinating that program, we had already um, protected and restored over 75,000 acres. Excellent. That's a long answer to how long I had been with NAMPA. But that was one of my highlights of NAMPA was being the recipient of the Philip Hyde grant. And I'm going to give a plug for that grant right now because the applications are open right as we're doing this podcast for people that are interested in receiving that grant this year, as well as the Jamie Moore Green grant, 
which goes to a college student that is working in photography and conservation. So people can go to the NAMPA website and submit their applications and get into the com- the competition for these grants. See why we made her president? She's like right into it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like you didn't have to jump into it with both feet. The Both feet were already there. So Both feet were already con- there. It's a continuation, right? Yeah, that's actually one of the requirements of the Philippide grant is that it not be a new project, but it, that it be an existing project that needs a jump start, needs added support. There's got to be a track record involved because we don't want to be giving out NAMPA money on speculation so much as really using that money to make a difference. Now, one question before we before we move on from that, you said that uh, you know you moved back kind of back into the full time photography. Did you, were you able to pass that torch on to someone else and keep that program rolling? Yeah, the program is still rolling. I had had several staff, and it turned out that my assistant became the coordinator, and they've just hired a new conservation director and a new uh, outreach and policy director. So that program is still going. They just finished a new implementation plan, which brought our plan up to date, um, given the need for climate adaptation and wrapping in resiliency into the plans. And that was in Northern California, correct? Right. Um, The geographic region was the Bay Area, the coast from Santa Cruz north to Mendocino, and then out into the San Joaquin Delta and all of San Francisco Estuary, Tomales Bay, Bolinas Lagoon, Bodega Bay, and a lot of those Ramsar sites, which are internationally recognized wetlands. Huge area. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a lot of work. So what do you actually, so you mentioned that you go to Death Valley and maybe you haven't mentioned it, but I happen to know you go to Death Valley each winter. Uh Um, What other things do you, do you kind of like to do? Um, And and I guess in some ways this is kind of hard because I, you and I talk so much about what you've done in Death Valley. We've been on the phone while you're, you've been sitting in the middle of a dust storm and considering whether you're going to stay a little bit longer. I know I've been out in the field and when people talk to me about being in Nampa, they're like, Oh, I just met somebody at a campground out in death Valley. And I'm like, Oh, I know who you're talking about. So (laughs) kind of a small world. Yeah, it is a small world. A lot of Nampa members come out there to photograph because it is, it's one of the destinations for photographers. And um, for instance, Michael Fry, who is, going to be one of our award recipients this year was out there and and camped in my campground with his wife, Claudia. And I, they're just, they're all kinds of photographers, NAMPA members that show up out there. It's, it's kind of fun. Winter is definitely the time to be there. It is. And um, I spend usually three months there, either in the spring, winter or um, fall, winter. And my job there is campground host and I manage the busiest first come first serve campground in the, in the park. Uh, the bigger campground is all on reservations, but my campground is first come first serve, which poses a lot of interesting challenges with people that are trying to get in there because it's a no generator campground. So everybody likes to be in that campground. So it's a, it's a very busy job. And then I also, uh, on the side, sidelight with the Jeep company that rents Jeeps, they're getting more and more requests for tours. 
and having people go with them into the backcountry. So on my days off from the park service, I drive people into the backcountry with Jeeps and Hummers. How long have you been going out there? I've done it for three years, three seasons. And I'm taking a pass on this fall season because I was out there in the spring. And I'm probably going to pass on the spring because it's just too windy. It seemed that every time I had my three days off, there was a haboob, one of those giant windstorms that come through where you can't see a thing. You can't drive on the on the highway because you can't see the highway or even the stripes down the road. And I just, I only got out hiking a couple of times because I was always in a windstorm on my days off. So I think what I'll be doing is just, I'm going to offer to substitute for this coming season and then come back next fall. But there's only so many images you can get in a storm like that. Once oh, you, yeah. <laughs> once you've got the no, the no visibility shot, you, you've got it. I got some great images of these things coming in, though. They come in like a oh, wall. Oh, I bet. Yeah, and I bet. it's pretty amazing. And there's no end of photographing in Death Valley. It's so huge. And I, it's the largest national park south of Alaska in the lower 48 states, over 7 million acres. And I have not begun to explore it all. It's just, it's a huge, huge park. It's 97% wilderness, designated wilderness. And so even though there are mining trails and mining roads from the historic days, most of it is really inaccessible except by foot. And you don't want to be out there on your own, especially in 100 plus degree heat. And that can show up like in March, right? Oh, yeah. I think I would. There was one year I was out there in April and it was crazy. It was 98 degrees by nine o'clock in the morning. It was. Mm -hmm. uh, the last three weeks that I was there this season into April, it was 111 degrees. And it was. We, we recommend that people be off the trails by 10 a.m. I think Death Valley. Death Valley has the record, does it not? It does. For hottest temperature? 134 degrees. That's what I was thinking. And I knew it, it was 130 was, plus. Yeah, yeah. And they hit 132 or something like that last year. So it's very feasible that with climate change, that record's going to be broken. I can't even imagine what that feels like. Or is it just that once it gets to about 100, it just it's just hot no matter what it is? I think that's what it is. It's really interesting because the people that live there permanently spend half the year indoors in air conditioning. And thankfully, the utilities hold up and they do, it doesn't break down very often. But what's interesting is that they turn off their water heaters and they just they use the opposite faucet for, to get water. So they turn on the cold faucet to get hot water. And then they let the water heater go down and cool off and they use the heated or the water out of the water heater once it cools down as their cold water source. That's one of those places I have always wanted to go. It's always been on my list. It's not that far away for me to go, right? I live in Utah and I've just yeah. never done it. I've never made the time. So I just, I just need to do it. You need to do it. It's a pretty special place. I can't get enough of it. It is a neat place. It's, I mean, for somebody that likes to photograph mountains, there's a lot of mountains there. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of, there are a lot of mountains there and it's just, yeah, it's so clear and so dry and so hot 
that you either have just completely clear skies or you get a little dust. And I think there's like a two week window in December where they get some storms through there. And that's about it, isn't it? Yeah. Although this this summer with the monsoons that came up from Arizona, they had some of the most um, horrendous flooding that they've ever had. A lot of the roads got washed out. I'm not even sure whether Highway 190 is open yet because of so much road damage from the flash floods. That's good. It's a little bit crazy to get that much moisture in the summertime, but I guess it's a good thing. I'm curious whether or not my campground or my site (laughs) survived. Still there. We have this funky old phone booth that got knocked down in a flash flood last year and the park service was going to haul it off. But those of us that work there are kind of attached to it because where do you see a phone booth anymore? And so we had them reinstall it. I hope that it didn't get washed out again. Yeah, they probably won't be up for doing that a second time. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. Do you have a favorite photo from there when you do get some free time? Yeah, I've got several places that I lo- love to photograph. I like to go up to Augerberry Point in the late afternoon, which is about a nine-mile dirt road off the road that goes into Wild Rose. And you're looking down on the salt flats. You can see so far, the view is probably like 260 degrees. And you're up very high, probably close to eight, 9,000 feet, looking down at the lowest spot in the continental US at Badwater. But you can see all of the salt flats and then out towards Saline Valley and a lot of the other valleys that are part of the national park. And if you can get a clear day, especially one with cumulus clouds, late afternoon light is fantastic up there. Or Dante's view in the morning is kind of the opposite, and it's on the other side of the valley, right above Badwater. So those are kind of nice scenic places to photograph. And then one of my other favorite places to go is Titus Canyon. And the reason that I like that is that it climbs up very high over White Pass and Red Pass with strange geological formations that are very photogenic. And then it drops into the riverbed and you literally drive through the riverbed for the rest of the drive. It's a 27 mile one-way drive on a very narrow road, but there are bighorn sheep in there. There's usually blooming cacti in there. Um, it's just one of those places that you can stop and photograph just about anything that you want in, in the desert, in nature. Um, there are tarantulas during migration. That's kind of fun to watch them on parade. That'd be neat. Yeah. The desert is full of life. Just got back from filming a, a salmon run in a high, high mountain desert in Wyoming and Utah. And now you're talking about a tarantula migration and now that's, That sounds like a fun project. (laughs) (laughs) This is tarantula migration time right now, actually, now through November. That's interesting. So how many – describe that for a spider enthusiast, but not (laughs) – They're out there looking for mates is what they're doing. So they're all out and running around, but it's not like uh, you're going to run over them because there's so many of them, you can dodge them. But it's just, it's it's good because you can see a lot more tarantulas at this time of year. Have you guys ever seen the tarantulas during the migration? No. I didn't even know there was such a thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of crazy. 
I've only seen it once in California. I, I want to say it was like mid-October, early October. Uh-huh. So yeah, so not not too far, at least from when we're recording this. But um, yeah, it was kind of, and I was in an RV, so I couldn't stop really fast. <laughs> but they would, they would, they would just kind of, and they don't move very fast. They just kind of mosey along the road. And, yeah. They like the roads for some reason. I don't know whether it's the heat absorption or, or what, but they do like to frequent the roads. I remember trying to pull my RV over. I'm like, I have to get a photo of this. You know, of course, you know, they're, they're small and I'm trying to get down to this low angle. And I know they jump, but I'm still laying on the ground photographing them, trying to pull my RV over in a spot that really there wasn't much space for the RV. And, but I had to get a tarantula photo. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, uh, if you're in the desert right now or places like the southern San Joaquin Valley, Carrizo Plain, Hollister area around Pinnacles National Park, any place that has a good population of tarantulas, it's migration time right now. It's going to be tough to break away from what we like to do in the fall. <laughs> However, that would be a... It'd be a fun experience. Yeah. Strong second to the the colored lizards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be fun to do. I'm with you. I mean, I've just got this vision in my mind. It's like the I'm envisioning like the Serengeti or something or the Masamara and the mass, <laughs> you know, migration. So uh, I'm sure it's really, nothing really like that. But, tiny yeah. scale. <laughs> On a tiny scale, yeah. <laughs> They're not social creatures like the wildebeests. Right, right. (laughs) But they're out there and they're all out there moving at the same time. Yeah, that's pretty neat. That'd be neat to see. What kind of tips do you have since this is a photographer podcast? What kind of tips do you have for photographers for either prepping for a trip out there or once they get there? Because there there's certainly some of those, you know, what I refer to as those, you know, the tripod spots. Mm-hmm. that a lot of people like to photograph but like you said it's such a huge park that there's there must be so many you've already mentioned a few that you like but what kind of tips would you have for photographers for either planning a trip or once they get there um i think that one of the things that is notable is that there are those iconic spots but there are always ways to get your own photo you don't always have to shoot the same thing that everybody else shoots or from the same angle uh, mesquite dunes is a, a classic. You see pictures of mesquite dunes all the time. I think it's probably the most photographed dune system anywhere. But um, it's a matter of watching the light, looking for shadows, and then working on some interesting angles. And um, the other thing I like to do out there is shoot night photos because it's a dark sky park. And even though you do get a little bit of light pollution from Las Vegas, which is a good two-hour drive away and over the Charleston Mountains and the Amargosa Mountains, uh, the dark skies are phenomenal. So if you like to shoot night photography, Death Valley is a wonderful place. And because of the historic aspect, there are wagon, uh, wagon trains from the 20 Mule Team Borax time that you can use as your foreground to shooting the Milky Way, or um, there are old miners' cabins that you can use as your foreground. But um, my suggestion would be to be up early, stay out late, stay out after dark. Don't pack it in just because the blue hour is gone. Uh, stay and shoot the the night sky, and set up. Get your settings set up 
before nighttime so that not only you can see what you're doing, but take your meter readings then and be prepared to shoot multiple images and uh, focus stack them. There's some great software programs that are out there that you can use for focus stacking. And so nighttime is a wonderful time to be photographing out there because it will get cold in the winter, but um, it, it's, it's really amazing because of the isolation. But then with the, some of the other iconic spots such as Badwater or Zabriskie Point, be prepared to walk a little distance. Don't just set up where everybody else sets up. If you hike out Badwater for a mile or more, most people stop after the first half mile. You can get those iconic salt crystal formations um, that are much better than what most people can get. Or at Zabriskie Point, um, turn around and shoot the other direction. You've got the Badlands there with shadows and a very interesting landscape that can make all kinds of patterns. So watch for patterns. The geology is phenomenal. Um, get in close as well as stay, stay out afar. There's just, there's no end to what you can shoot in Death Valley. Sounds like the, the landscapers experiment, you know, the landscapers lab almost. Yeah. But then there are, there's wildlife too, but there again, it's usually uh, evening, nighttime or very early morning. So be prepared to get up before dawn and stay out after dark. I seem to remember hearing or reading something about not walking across the sand because there's snakes that bury in the sand. I don't know how true that is. I feel, I feel like that was kind of a, a rumor I had heard. I don't know if it was somebody that maybe it was like a photographer that didn't want the footsteps in the <laughs> sand or something. But You know, I, I have not heard that. Uh, I'm sure they probably could be. But uh, it's not anything that we warn against. Yeah, it's probably probably just me being warned not to not to make footsteps. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> it worked, turned on. It did. <laughs> <laughs> Still yeah. to this day. Yeah. Well, the nice thing too about the sand is that as soon as a windstorm comes along, those footsteps are gone. And it there again, most people stay within the first couple hundred yards a few people will venture out to the high dunes but it's probably one in a hundred that do and so those mesquite dunes are huge or expansive i should say not and um you can get away from the crowds but my favorite dune system out there is eureka dunes although we we do have like five dune systems but eureka are the tallest dunes in california and they wrap rival the great sand dunes in Colorado. Probably some days they're taller, some days they're shorter, but it's a huge system. It's got its own endemic plants that live in it, own, own endemic insects that live in Eureka dunes. And it's a bit of a trek to get out there. And you have to cross the last chance range and drive across an alluvial fan. Periodically, I probably shouldn't advertise this, but maybe once every couple of years, Inyo County grades the road, but then you get a flash flood like we've just recently had, and that road is non-existent. So that tends to limit the number of people that come out. There are campgrounds out there. Um, it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. But I've been out there and only seen a couple people each trip. 
Well, yeah, in a park that in a park that large, you would you would almost hope that that would still be possible. Mm -hmm. So yeah. many of the parks have become so popular that it's nice to hear that there's still some quiet places to go. Yeah, Ibex Dunes in the south end of the park is another one of those places because you have to park and hike in about a mile and a half. Never see anybody out there. Does it get pretty busy in the winter? It can. Uh, holiday weekends and, yeah, usually just around holidays. Thanksgiving can be a zoo. And we've had to open overflow campgrounds on holidays. But then we get a lull where last, last year in both November and in January, I had seven people in the campground. So we with 85 sites. If we can just talk those tarantulas into waiting until January. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be more my style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had a lot of coyotes this year too. I, I don't know whether they were pupping or whether they had big litters or what, but we had far more coyotes this year than I had seen in previous years. Did you have more rodents as far as you noticed or no? I couldn't, you know, it's really hard to tell. Uh, the squirrels are always, always running around, but um, I think the coyotes tend to be a little bit more opportunistic. They tend to eat plant material as much, if not more so than rodents. And then given the fact that people are not real good about pecking up their trash sometimes or putting their food away, they do become opportunistic. And so part of my job there is to warn people and make certain that they do put their food away and that they're not attracting coyotes and ravens, which ravens make a huge mess. I just watched somebody this morning. Was it this morning or yesterday morning at one of the um, parking lots here in Estes Park? Apparently the, the crows and ravens got into some trash and they just had it scattered all over about 20 or 30 parking spots. I mean, that's how much trash there was. And this guy's going around picking it all up and all the ravens. And you can almost see the expression on their face. Like we hate you. We just yeah. hate you. <laughs> I had a great big group of bicyclists because death Valley is a favorite bicycling area for not only road races, but also touring groups. And I had about six campsites next to each other, all occupied by a big group and they did not put their food away. The ravens discovered it, and it was just a horrendous mess. Smart birds. Mm -hmm. So you have, um, so you're not going to Death Valley for a few months, and obviously you're busy with Nampa as president. What other things are you working on at the moment? Nampa's kind of in a state of transition, and I think a lot of it is precipitated by the pandemic. And as Dawn knows. Um, she was the pandemic president. <laughs> <laughs> There's a phrase I haven't heard before. <laughs> I am definitely going to make Don a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I feel badly because she never got to really meet with any of our members or our board directly in person. But I think what our goal right now is to bring back a lot of our in-person meetings and to do it in a strategic way because we want to serve our membership. We want to be providing the programs that not only are benefit our members, but also help us financially. Um, I think we did really well under the circumstances in the pandemic. 
a lot of organizations ha had a really bad time, went belly up. Nampa was able to adjust, thanks to Don's leadership and leadership of the board, we were able to adjust pretty quickly, reprogram and move a lot of our programs online and into a webinar series or not webinar, I'm sorry, um, into an on online series like Zoom. And we came up with new programs that kept people interacting with each other. And I think that that's one of the values of NAMPA. And so we are, again, uh, regrouping and trying to move forward with our in-person programs while still maintaining some of the more popular programs. During Don's tenure, we completed a strategic plan and it gave us an idea as to what our members wanted. And a lot of it was tiered benefits and things that not everybody could use, but that our pros might use or our enthusiast amateurs might use. And so what we're trying to do is build an organizational structure that will provide the programs that our members want and the services that our members want and to do it in a way where it's cost effective and we can afford to do it. So it's a real challenge. Um, our revenue was dropping slightly, particularly during the pandemic. We're hoping to grow it back. And we're just looking at some new opportunities to provide new services to our members. What kind of, uh, what kind of new initiatives can, can members expect? I'm going to start with our summit, which is coming up in the first week of May. We've been doing summits for many, many years but we haven't had one live for five years. And we do evaluate each summit and some of them have been pretty turnkey. In this case, we're getting together in Tucson. And although we will be having a lot of the indoor presentations, the beautiful pictures that inspire and opportunities to network, we'll be doing a lot more in-field work, um, having up to 20 field trips. and a lot of them will be right there on site while others will be off site. Tucson in the spring is just a glorious place to be. And so there's an opportunity to get together and see each other again in person, but to also do some phot photography together at the summits, which we have not done for a long, long time. Yeah, there really is. I mean, considering that we're still, gosh, we're still what, nine months out. I mean, so there's still going to be things added to the schedule, but there's already a really tremendous amount of field workshops. I know they're doing some wildflowers. They're doing hummingbirds. They're, they mm -hmm. have a, a day outing. I think there's a night outing to photograph night skies in the area. I mean, it's just crazy how many things, and I think it's part of it's just because we haven't been together in person in so many yeah. years, that I think this will be a lot of fun to kind of, to get everybody back out there. Yeah, I think so too. And we have ha been able to continue our regional or reinstate our regional events. And those have been selling out like wildfire. It seems that as soon as we announce them, they're selling out. Uh, we've already sold out the Oregon coast and that's only been announced for about a month. Uh, so I do think that there is a pent up demand for getting out and photographing together with other NAMPA members. And so we're going to continue to expand our regional programming because uh, not only does that generate revenue for the organization, it provides our members a chance to get together and learn from each other. And I think that's part of what's really fun about regional events is that, I mean, they can be instructional 
or they can just be an opportunity where people, the leaders will kind of direct us what time of day to be where, and you just kind of share from each other. What settings are you using? Um, you know, what time of day do you want to be at this platform in order to photograph these water birds? It's, it's just a great sharing opportunity. Um, we've been having some challenges with insurance for some of our programs, like the high school program. And so that's been on hold ever since the pandemic. And we're not ready to reinstate that yet because we haven't resolved being able to insure minors. But our college program, the students are, are no longer minors. And that's taking place in conjunction with the summit in Tucson. And what's wonderful about that program is although it only serves a limited number of students, it's both a learning experience for the students, but an opportunity to partner with a conservation organization, usually one that has land management and visitor services. And the students in the matter of three days produce a video and narrate it, write it, photograph it, produce it, and leave it with the organization for their visitor services. For instance, when we were in Las Vegas the last time, they produced one at the Henderson Wetlands, and that's still being shown at the visitor center there as an introductory to the wetlands at the center. So part of what NAMPA tries to do is give back as well as uh, provide services for members, but give back to the communities where we are. And that college program has really cultivated a lot of really talented photographers too. It has. And several of them have, have remained very active in Napa, but has have also gone on to do really great things mm -hmm. in the conservation realm or within nature photography after they go through college and you know as they're starting their careers. We have two of the former college students as board members in Napa right now. And I'm impressed with their questions their, and their contributions at the board level. You know, Beth, you mentioned that they produce a video and it's giving back to the community, but that's also a tremendous portfolio piece for a student to take on, you know, and a lot of students don't always get that. And, and I mean, it's been a long time since I've been in college, but I remember that was always the big thing. You wanted to have those, those showcase pieces that, and, and these are things that are still being used. So there's some credibility behind them. They're not just, you know, an in-classroom type of presentation that never gets seen by any, anybody besides the 20 or 30 students you're taking a class with. These are actually things that are being actively used. And like you said, I mean, it's still here it is four years later and they're still using it. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to mention is the, if there's any listeners out there that know anything about ensuring events with students, <laughs> definitely reach out. <laughs> we can't seem to, can't seem to find just the right, right mix of, of, what we need and what the insurance company wants. So, yeah, it's even challenging online, surprisingly, to be able. It, we thought about moving our high school program online with tutorials, and even insuring students online is a challenge. It's insuring minors. You know, you were talking about the the conservation topic earlier, and then we got on the subject of college students and thinking about. You know, the program that when we interviewed Michael Forsberg on the the Nature Photographer, uh, Michael was mm -hmm. talking about their uh, conservation photography program that they're doing at the University of Nebraska. 
and of course, you know, it's for him, it's tied into the full watershed. It's tied into the, the hooping crane recovery and the crane migration, that, that sort of thing. But there's no, no shortage of opportunities for a college student to go out and jump into a, you know, one of a thousand programs around the country. And we have some, we have some great resources to get people plugged in. Is Nampa trying to piggyback on programs like that at all? Yeah. Nampa um, is trying to promote programs like that. Uh, Conservation is one of our big goals. The other thing that we're trying to do is to engage with bio blitzes. This is a way that both members that are college students as well as general members can get engaged and provide scientific input through their photography to help create database of um, images for targeting species or to help be able to do surveys and be able to know what resources plant and animal are in a particular geographic region. So that's a major focus with that and I naturalist of our conservation committee right now is promoting some of these uh, bio blitzes and using iNaturalist and trying to help with uh, surveys and getting photographers engaged with scientific research. Well, we've talked about it before too, right? It's That's a good way to to have a project, right? To come up with a, your own pet project and find something that really interests you and then, then go get engaged with it. And that's a good way to help get funding and or, you know, the assistance that you might need to get that project off the ground so that you're not necessarily having to, to eat that whole weight of that on your own. You know what I mean? Yeah. We did a bio blitz with national geographic and the national park service at golden gate national recreation area and point race national seashore. And a number of NAMPA members came out and um, were photographers for it. I was the photographer for a couple of different geographic locations And we were all assigned to not only photograph people in the field, but photograph what they were finding. And what we learned through that particular bio blitz was that this was the most biologically diverse national park in the national park system. It was a real surprise at how many species were identified on that weekend. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of cheating. It's sorry. I was just going to say, you said that's Point Reyes? Uh, Golden Gate National Recreation Golden Area Gate. and Point Reyes. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. sorry, Jason. Go I ahead. Marine species. Oh. We're lucky that we have marine species as well as land species. <laughs> <laughs> it was so, funny. I was, I was actually thinking of the desert and the insects because once you start getting into the, the insect side of things, right, there's a lot of, lot yeah, of variation there. Yeah, there are. And what was really interesting is one crew climbed redwood trees and some of the Nampa photographers went up with the re- with the crew to photograph species that only live in the tops of redwood trees and nobody ever gets to see them or even know about them. And as I mentioned, we have marine species, not only the big charismatic whales, seals, dolphins, but all of the tide pool creatures and the insects and we have a lot of birds. This area, particularly, I think, other than Cape May, probably consistently has the highest bird counts anywhere in the country. And so 
uh, it's just a real biologically diverse area right within a national park that's within a major city and urban area. But it was it was a great way to get uh, NAMPA members involved. Yeah, like I'm thinking of national parks like you, you know, Hawaii, which would also have marine life or Florida, which would have some marine life. But yeah, so it's it is pretty and that and that's pretty special to be that, like you said, to be that close to an urban area. Yeah, but it's just a very diverse biologically from a plant community perspective, as well as the interface with the ocean. And Point Reyes sticks way out into the ocean. And so it's the first landfall place for migratory bird species. And um, you just get hot, really high bird counts there. I've been there before. That's a, that's a neat place. It's a neat yeah. place. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, it's been two years ago now, but yeah, that's a neat place to visit. It sure is. It's a beautiful place, first of all. And it's, you know, it's it's more remote than you might think. It's very close, like you said. You know, the big centers, but when you uh-huh. when you're when you're out there, you feel very remote. So it's kind of a unique situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the places that I was the photographer for was in El Poland Spring and Tennessee Hollow, which is on the Presidio, right by the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's an area that I had been working with the Park Service on restoration plans and designs, and then helping them get funding to do restoration. It was the only area within uh, the city limits of San Francisco where you can restore an entire watershed. And much of that restoration, except for a connecting area at that point in time in 2015, was complete. And that is now complete. So the entire watershed pretty much has been restored. And the diversity right within the city limits, just by restoring that one small watershed was pretty amazing. So I was photographing those teams that were working on that. And you've had experience not working with not just the Park Service, but with other public offices as well or Mm -hmm. public departments. Yes, um, I was a contractor with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for about 19 years and uh, managing the restoration program, but also being engaged with the Fish and Wildlife Service and then A number of our partners were state agencies, such as California Department of Fish and Wildlife, helped them with their strategic plan, but also with restoration plans and um, public access issues that were facing the department on some of our state uh, land areas. And the Wildlife Conservation Board, which is the funding arm of the State Department of Fish and Wildlife, working with them to help prioritize where they put their funding as well as the state coastal conservancy. And then we had land management partners such as the land local land trusts and the uh, local open space districts and then utilities such as the San Francisco public utilities district. So I've worked with uh, agencies, government agencies pretty much at all levels. And the whole idea was to bring people together to get them on the same page and then get them working together on a common plan to restore priority wetlands and provide habitat linkages. I think that's that's the part that gets missed when we talk about conservation photography. You know, and and Michael did a good job of discussing this as he's as he's talking about, you know, the North Platte restoration or the Platte River restoration, sorry. And how many state entities and county entities and federal entities that that he's working with, and I I think that balancing 
the needs of all of those agencies involved and then finding finding that little small piece of common ground that will put us all to work. I think that's the piece that that's, gets missed when we talk about these conservation projects is just how many arms there are involved and how many balls you have to keep in the air and to narrow that down to a singleness of purpose on a project like that, I think is a, is a testament to the work that you did. I mean, you know, you talked about 19 years with the fish and wildlife service. That's what you're looking at for a project like that. You're looking at that long-term commitment. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Each of the agencies, as well as the NGO organizations like Audubon and Ducks Unlimited and even some of the more regional organizations, they all have their own missions and their own purposes for existing. They all manage their lands differently. And it's finding common ground and getting everybody on the same page and then helping them work through the issues that are facing everybody. Um, We've got agencies like the the Bureau of Reclamation or the Army Corps of Engineers that are building things. And at the same time, they're regulating these projects at the same time that they're regulating development projects. The Bay Conservation and Development Commission being the state regulatory agency like the Coastal Commission outside the Golden Gate, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission on the inside of the Golden Gate. And it's getting everybody to agree that we need to be doing habitat protection and restoration, but some of them are doing it for different purposes, not always for wildlife. Some of them are doing it for public access and recreation, and those come in conflict. So a lot of the work is problem solving. I like to say that um, not only was I working on the ecosystem, I was working on the ego system as well. We all have to remember that the public lands are multi-use, right? And so- yeah. And that's not just multi-use by people, but multi-use by the critters that inhabit that area as well, right? So That's right. And part of what we were doing was restoring for endangered species. Uh, we've got, is as well as some of the most diverse areas here in the Bay Area, we've got some of the largest list uh, of listed plants and animals of in, uh, federally listed and state listed threatened and endangered species. And so part of what we were trying to do is restore habitat for target species and come up with guidelines that for freshwater habitats, for estuarine habitats, things that would, uh, or guidelines that would help land managers restore for target species and then help them find the funding to do it. A lot of it involves bulldozers and uh, at first, the public was freaking when they would see freaking when they were seeing bulldozers out in the marsh. <laughs> Part of our messaging was, yeah, bulldozers happen. These levees were built up over many, many years. And in order to bust a levee and bring back uh, tidal action to a particular area, you need to re-sculpt the area that's going to get flooded in order to create the uh, kind of habitat at the level level of depth that certain target species are feeding. And so it's a matter of identifying what species are going to be using what project and then restoring for those target species where you may restore for somebody else's target species next door on a property that's owned by a different agency. 
Yeah, and you mentioned, I know I hear that a lot with some of these projects, you know, whether somebody's doing their own, you know, like a small local project or a big scale project, it's always the funding that's the big, that's the big mm -hmm. challenge, right? You know, we can all come up with ideas, we can all come up with, you know, photos we want to take, but, but ultimately you need, you need the funding to support it to make it happen. That's um, right. Do you have any advice for people if they're trying to start a project or if they're trying to narrow down a project maybe or? One of my suggestions is to talk to the adjacent landowners and see if you can expand your project or to an area of, that's nearby. The North American Wetlands Conservation Act is money that's out there for wetlands restoration. And if you can have a larger project, it can be tracts. It can be spread all over a geographic area. But if you can um, show that it's benefiting target species and that those species have been there and will use it and you have a larger project than just your small acreage, then even if it's already protected, you can use that as what they call match and they can then generate the matching funds from one of these other funding sources. It's a very complicated process, but it can be done. And I think that a lot of people tend to think small when in working in partnerships with several organizations and agencies, you can grow the scale of your project, even if you're not doing anything on a particular site at that point in time, and use it as match in order to generate funds. I think that's probably the biggest thing I hear from people about conservation projects is how do I get it started? Mm -hmm. how do, where do I go? So, so I yeah. think that's really, really good advice. Yeah. Right. It seems like not only just the funding side of it, but just in some of these projects, depending on how how, mit, how many different uh, areas of land it may impact or affect, the red tape could be uh, something that it would be, you know, something that might keep somebody from trying to go forward with something like that. And mm -hmm. I think that's maybe another benefit of having a membership with an organization like NAMPA, right, is to have that networking and have other folks that have gone there and done that before and have the benefit of working with other people that have done it, been there and know how to work with those agencies like yourself, Beth, and, and to work mm -hmm. through some of that red tape. Um, you don't, you're not, you're not left out there alone to just go try to figure something like that out. Exactly. There are people within Nampa that have done it and can help and advise. There are people that uh, by engaging some of these agencies with the, these projects, it becomes a priority to those agencies. And so you can cut through red tape just by getting them involved. And so um, it's, yeah, the red tape can be overwhelming, but it really, again, comes down to partnerships and working with people that have been there and done that. I might already have some connections to, yes. to get. Yes. You know, that's, that's, I think one of the biggest benefits of NAMPA is just the network that it has, you know, whether it's experience or people or, or, you know, funding sources, there's all kinds of networking opportunities within the organization. And prestige. If, if NAMPA members are um, working on a project, just being part of NAMPA carries a lot of weight in itself. So Beth, one of the, one of the biggest obstacles that wildlife photographers are facing is it seems like this uh, adversarial relationship with national parks, adversarial relationships with 
um, land managers, that kind of thing. What can or what is is Nampa doing to alleviate some of that? I know that there's some educational programs that and um, that Nampa has in place, but also some some private entities have kind of started, you know, the land ethic and that kind of thing. What kind of educational opportunities is 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 Nampa seeing this as a problem, number one? And then what kind of opportunities are they going to take advantage of or can people take advantage of to maybe do a little bit of learning so that we can kind of reverse this seemingly, uh, yeah, I guess I don't want to make more of it than than it already is, but it, it seems like there's a, a war on photography right now by the well, National Park really, Service. Really good point and a really good question. And I think it, it goes both ways. It's a double-edged sword. Yes, there is a bit of a war on photography, but at the same time, I think that our public lands are getting loved to death to a certain extent. No, I do not and disagree with, with you there. Yep. What was that? I say, I do not disagree with you there. I fu fully agree with that statement. And I yeah. think that's part of the problem, obviously. I definitely think that that's part of the problem. So Nampa, in order to minimize the impact that our members have on the landscape, hopefully fingers crossed by the end of the year, we will be releasing our ethics handbook. And this isn't just how to do it or telling our members what to do, but also recognizing that there are ways to photograph and minimize your impact and ways to photograph um, target species so that you don't disturb them, as well as the la uh, managing the landscape. And some photographers are more sensitive about their impact than others, and hopefully this will be a wake-up call for them. Um, and so we're really looking forward to releasing that handbook about um, photography and the impact on the landscape and on species as a resource rather than a how-to for our members. And then at the same time, we have an advocacy program to try to um, alleviate some of the issues that come with photography and fees. I think this originally came out of the commercial use of national and parks and public lands, where for a number of years, fees and permits have been required by large-scale commercial filming. And mm. there's been a sense that maybe this needed to be scaled down towards the more individual user. And what NAMPA has been trying to do is protect the individual user who's not filming commercially from some of these fees and the impact of these fees. Um, so we're advocating for both the photographer and our rights to public lands, but also for protecting these lands from too much impact. Excellent. Thank you. I just wanted to hear it from you because I, I have my private thoughts on it, but yeah. 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 Don, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. And we have talked about, you know, within Nampa or within the board conversations of, um, you know, as we would love to see some sort of, you know, when we've talked about ideas of, you know, where do, where do we want to take Nampa about, you know, 
how can we make it kind of consistent across all the national parks or all the federal units, you know, for a permitting process? How can we make it a little bit more consistent so that you can have the same expectations when you go other places? You know, it's it's on the radar and, you know, yeah, at some point, you know, of course, there's always priorities that you kind of have to juggle around. Um, it's definitely on the radar, though. It's and at some point our hand just may get forced because it, it does get to a point where the decisions are being made for you and you kind of lose some of that control. So yeah. I don't think we want to see that happen. And I do think that if everybody is a responsible photographer, it uh, will alleviate some of the impact as well as some of the public perception. Um, unfortunately, it just takes one person stepping off the trail and into a bed of wildflowers or disturbing a nest of nesting birds to give all photographers a bad name. And so what we're really trying to do is educate our members as to how to minimize their impact. And at the same time, look at ways that they can give back and help the natural resources. Uh, National Public Lands Day is coming up. Well, actually, it's probably just past. I think it was this weekend. I think it um, was Saturday. I think. Yeah, it was Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. And um, it's an opportunity where it, uh, a lot of people are out cleaning up resources, doing restoration projects. It's an op- you know, look for opportunities like that as a photographer to volunteer, document the work that's going on or participate in a bio blitz and do some positive give back on some of these public lands. And I think that really improves the image of photographers in general. So to shift gears, kind of, I think this has been a great conversation, but there's one last thing I wanted to make sure that one, I gave you, Beth, the opportunity to talk about what you have coming up in the next year or so, but also just to tell people, because I don't think this is a place that's on people's radars. Mm -hmm. So you've gone, you have a place that's kind of a favorite place. It's kind of a remote place. Um, You've had some interesting stories about challenges of getting there and back home. Um, So why don't you... so rather than me talking in riddles again, why don't you kind of elaborate as to what I'm referencing? Yeah, Donna's referencing my recent escapades. I've had four trips now to the country of Algeria, which is not an open country for visitation, but is beginning to open up a little bit more. It's a tough visa to get, but at the same time, it's worth pursuing. Um, I have been, I've traveled in, a lot of different parts of the country. The north area, before you cross the mountains onto the plain, is Mediterranean. It's the Barbary Coast that's been notorious for Barbarossa and the pirates. It's also where the Roman Empire was most extensive in North Africa. So there's a good opportunity for historical photography as well as just extensive um, Mediterranean plants, animals, and just geographic scenery. But what's really been fascinating to me are my trips into the Sahara. About 90% of the country is desert. And this last March, I took a two-week camping trip into the Sahara, into Tislianger, which is the large national park in the very south east corner near the Niger and Libyan border. And this park is not only renowned for 
amazing landscapes and rock formations. It's been compared to Wadi Rum on steroids, basically. Um, but it's also got the world's largest collection of Neolithic petroglyphs and rock art in the world. And so the photographic opportunities in there are phenomenal. Um, it does have wildlife. I was able to photograph mufalo and a coca and a number of other animals, but it was the landscapes and camping in the desert and driving through the sands of the Sahara for two weeks without a road. We left the highway at, uh, where it branched off to either Niger or Libya and took off through the desert and stayed out there um, and camped and photographed for a couple of weeks. It's also the highest mountain range in Algeria is in the Sahara at over 10,000 feet. And so we did some hiking and climbed up to what UNESCO has identified as the most beautiful sunset and sunrise on the planet. And other than a dust storm happening while we were there, it was breathtaking. It was just amazing. Uh, Haleakala is well known for their sunrise and sunset. This is a volcanic area with very strange formations that look like multiple desert or um, the tower in Wyoming. And it's just for landscape photography, it can't be beat. But, um, the petroglyphs are amazing. So I've made four trips there and um, planning on going back, mostly because I have not yet made it to the plateau at Safar, which is a Neolithic city, has over 30,000 rock paintings in it. And it was um, off limits to foreigners until just recently. It had only been allowed to be permitted to visit by Algerian nationalists by permit. And then the whole country closed in March of 2020 and just opened back up again as of January 1st. And they, at the same time, they opened Safar to foreigners. And so I definitely have to get back and photograph Safar. And so um, I'm working on taking a few other photographers with me on these trips. But Algeria is just, it's, it's amazing. It's breathtaking. The people are friendly. Um, you know, Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt have seen so many tourists that tourists are seen as the wallet and the cash cow, where in Algeria, you're a welcomed guest and people are very, very friendly. Um, I've had multiple people give me gifts right off their bodies, their rings or their sunglasses or uh, a shell out of their purse, just because that's part of their hospitality is to give gifts. And uh, the people are just welcoming but the, the landscapes and nature in that country are amazing. And most of the population lives along the coast and in the tribal area of Kabylie. And so the desert is very sparsely populated with just a couple of settlements of Tuareg people, which is a Berber tribe, but they're the blue people of the Sahara. And um, a lot of them are still migratory. So there's a great opportunity for photographing both people, landscapes, wildlife, and I'm just intrigued with the place. 
and and obviously part of the challenge, like you said, part of the challenge is that there's some travel limitations there just from a government perspective, but yes. it's just, I know I, I've seen some of the photos that you've taken, taken over there. So we'll make sure that we have those in the show notes because mm-hmm. it is some very fascinating subjects over there. You know, I think that's a good point that you brought up, Don, in terms of limitations. My binoculars, the first trip over there in 2020, they were confiscated at customs. They don't want you having binoculars. Um, they are very concerned because they share a border with Libya on one side and disputed territory over natural gas fields with Morocco on the on the west side. And so they are very concerned about anybody who could be potentially capturing information and passing it along to entities that they would rather not have know what's going on. So my, my binoculars were confiscated. The largest lens that I brought into the country was 200 millimeter. I am, I was told that anything beyond that would be confiscated as well. But on the upside was that they were very good about registering my equipment that they took. They stored it in a safe at the airport and in security. And before I left the country, I took my receipt and got all of my equipment returned. So they just hold it and it's certified with a stamp and you can get it back. But don't plan on taking much that's longer than a 200 millimeter. Yeah, you don't you don't want your 500 millimeter get disappearing. No, you don't. No. And you definitely don't want to have to carry it around the airports only to find out you can't use it once you get there. Exactly. One of the favorite questions we have that we like to ask our, our guests is, and it's kind of a tricky one sometimes, it's a hard one to answer it actually sometimes. Um, we want to know what your favorite outdoor experience is. It could be with photography. It could be with anything. But what was your what is your favorite outdoor experience? That's actually a pretty easy one for me to answer. With all the time that I've spent in Death Valley, working in Yosemite, traveling the world, I think the highlight, my favorite outdoor experience was when I was able to secure a private permit and we were able to spend 16 days rafting the the Colorado River down the Grand Canyon. I was on the wait list for the permit actually in the lottery. took me 15 years to get that permit. So... It was a very arduous, long wait to get it, but we put together our own group, did all our own outfitting, rode our own boats, did our all of our own cooking, and uh, we did the river in June of 2019, and no mishaps, flipped a couple of boats, but not in any of the big water, and we all came out as friends, which sometimes doesn't happen. <laughs> Did you flip the boats on purpose or I'm just kidding? <laughs> no, <laughs> it was just getting used to being on the river. We had eight boats and two kayaks and 13 of us. And um, so almost everybody was rowing their own boat. And uh, we had a very, very tiny boat that was probably no bigger than my desk where two people were riding and they flipped that in the roaring twenties right off the bat. And the first 20 miles where we about every quarter of a mile, there's a rapid kind of got that one out of the way. And then another one, for some reason flipped after the little Colorado river, it could be that they just weren't paying attention or the end, they entered the rapid wrong. And then another one was in house rock, which has a very hole that just kind of sucks you down. 
And after that, when we hit the big water after Phantom Ranch with all of the big rapids that everybody is so fearful of, uh, we went right through those with no problem. And even Lava Falls, every we had most boats go left and one boat went right and nobody flipped and it was a great ride. And some of us were ready to haul it out and do it again. <laughs> you know, I've had the opportunity to do some river rafting in my time and um, we've, you know, gone with some private guides and stuff and it's such an incredible opportunity. I've, and I've always wanted to do that Colorado river float. That would just be incredible. But. Oh, it was amazing. Just being in the bottom of the Grand Canyon and having river life for oh, more than two weeks and being able to hike the side canyons, go swimming in some of the creeks. Uh, we ate well because we were all cooking. And um, it was just the most incredible experience. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's pretty rare. Like you said, you had to get permits. You have to wait quite a while. Um, not everybody gets a chance to do it, you know, so. No, and, and to be able to do it privately like this, as we talked about, getting that permit is the hardest part. And then once you secure the permit, there are all kinds of requirements, dates that you need to meet for having the fees paid, equipment lists that need to have compliance. Uh, you have to have driver's license and everything of everybody that's going on the river well in advance. And that needs to match with the park service has when you arrive and you do your check. Um, and the, equipment list goes on and on and on and you have to lay it all out they do an orientation but then they come and check all of your gear because they want everybody to be safe and if you're missing a piece of gear at that point there's no way that you can go and get it because it's a long long way to go anywhere to get it and you'll miss your launch date and your launch time so that's it you've got to be very well prepared so it was really a lot of work for about six months to get this all put together. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was just an amazing experience. Do a recording. Yeah. The way down. I like that. The good, the bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people had a GoPro and that was really fun. Yeah, that would be fun, especially to the rapids, especially on the boats that flipped. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, when we flipped in the Salmon River a few years back, uh, I had the camera running on video the entire time. And all I had was a bunch of underwater bubbles and kind of disoriented whatever rocks were underwater. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was really funny. Yeah, river, river rafting is it's amazing. But it's what you get to see and experience down there in the Grand Canyon, just kind of going through geologic time. Did you see animals? That was the other question I was going to ask you. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you saw birds and stuff, but did you didn't see any sheep or any other kind of... Oh, yeah. We saw a lot of sheep. Uh, and we had enough time that we could do a layover day a couple of times. And we laid over at an area that had a nice big eddy that was almost like a swimming pool. And being that this was June and it was starting to get warm, that layover day was fantastic. And we, because of being our own outfitters, we were able to bring lounge chairs and just make ourselves very comfortable. So we would sit out on the riverbank and then watch for wildlife across the river. And there was not only a herd of sheep, about seven sheep, but one giant ram that for two nights in a row came right down to the water. And then we would watch him, watch us. And then eventually he would just kind of disappear back up into the rocks. That's cool. It was really cool. Yeah, a lot of birds, um, river otter, a lot of fish. 
We saw some endangered fish. What do the days look like? Do you raft the whole day or do you just raft for a couple hours and then take a hike or does it change every day? Um, no, there is a pattern because of doing all of our own outfitting, we had to pack up our own personal gear and we had to load the boats. And what we would do is we'd start off at dawn with coffee and we would just keep our chairs, our lounge chairs in a circle and we'd sit and have coffee. Some people may take off and hike for a little while. And then we'd pack up all our own gear and get it ready. And we would have breakfast. And the way that we had breakfast was one, a, a couple that were on our trip owned a farm up in Oregon. And they brought enough fresh eggs from their chickens to last us all 13 people for two weeks. And, um, and then everybody cooked a dinner and brought enough for everybody. And so we'd use the leftovers from dinner, mix it with the eggs, and make breakfast burritos every morning. And so the breakfast burritos were our breakfast. Everybody would bring their own lunches. And then one person would cook their meal for, that, uh, for the group that night. And then the leftovers became breakfast again. So that worked out really well. And so by the time we had breakfast, then we had to load our boats. And that took about two hours to break camp and get everything strapped on so that we weren't going to lose it down the river. And so we would go for a couple of hours and either pull over for lunch or just just float because 90% of the river is fairly calm. And we'd eat our own lunch. We'd keep ice chests in each boat. And we, because of the cold water, we were able to keep everything fairly cold. And um, we'd pull out after lunch and take a hike or depending upon where we were and we have known hikes that we wanted to do. And by mid-afternoon, um, we would pretty much pull up when we knew that we were going to camp or where we were, where we were going to camp. And so then it took a couple of hours to set up camp. And we'd set up our own bed in places that we want. We had one area that we designated Snore Alley so that anybody that snored went in that section and left the rest of us <laughs> for free. Yeah, Jason, you'd have to be in Snore Alley. I would have, have to be in Snore Alley. Just ask anybody that's shared a room with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we put about four or five people in Snore Alley, and then uh, everybody else scattered and set up their own personal camp. And then um, we'd have happy hour. And then after happy hour, the people that were in charge of dinner would start cooking. We had a couple of real gourmet cooks, and they one of them brought along a Dutch oven and made a layered enchilada-type casserole, and he wanted to do it over the fire rather than over the gas stoves and brought the charcoal and the whole thing. So he was able to cook that while everybody else went hiking. And mm. so we'd have dinner, and we'd try to be done with dinner before dark, and even though it got dark in the summertime a lot later because of being deep in the canyon it got um the shadows were very deep fairly early and so we just wanted to be sure that we were done with everything by dark and not long after we'd go to bed and we'd wake up at dawn and go hiking and have coffee so for instance before breakfast we we could do a two-hour hike and then we'd start the day all over again yeah, sounds like I know who to call if I decide to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. I mean, bar none, that was the best outdoor experience ever. I've never yeah. done a river trip. It sounds like a lot of fun. 
It's been on my wish list too. It's yeah, it's a lot of fun. And thankfully I've got a lot of friends that know what they're doing with the boats. So I could, I could row the lesser rapids and the flat, but when it came time to the big water, I'd let, let the guys take over. Yeah. That's a big deal. And that's probably a good point to make sure that folks know, right. That are thinking about or considering this is um, the trips I went on. We were with professional guides that had guided the river. We were out of Jackson and yeah. they guided the river multiple times and knew the river. And it's important to know the river. I mean, that's a big deal. You got to know how to enter the rapids, which side to enter the rapids on, mm-hmm. or you can get yourself in a lot of trouble and in a hurry, you know? So oh yeah. You shouldn't just go jump in the river and try it. Right. Right. You shouldn't. <laughs> we picked our launch dates based upon what we knew at the time. The, um, Bureau of Reclamation was going to be letting water out of Glen Canyon. We were able to know that long in advance. And so that's when we picked our launch dates. It was based upon what we knew was, was going to happen on the river. But we had a couple of people that had been down 10 times. They thought this was the best trip ever, which I, I could not have been more perfect. But we had somebody who was able to go on and um, not only make maps, because we've got a river guide map, but he printed out a sheet of what to expect every single day, where he expected, because knowing what our water was going to be, where we should enter the rapid, what we should look for, uh, mile markers, the whole thing. And even though we had the river guide, kind of like a triptych that you could use with all of the markers, his notes really helped. And so we kept them encased in, uh, in plastic and then in a plastic Ziploc baggie. And we would pull them out and read them before we entered any rapid. So, we, and then we just kind of watch and know where to go. But I think that avoided a lot of mishaps. Well, thank you, Beth, for joining us tonight on our podcast. And thank you for all you're doing for Nampa over the years. I know not just now as president, but I know you've, you have been extremely active with Nampa. So thank you for everything you do for, for the organization and the members. So thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Nature Photographer Podcast. Join us next month, and we will chat with you soon. 